0: Lake Bodum in Espo, Finland. A place infamous for its beautiful scenery and refreshing sights. Sights that turned into a horror story overnight. The country the city is located in, Finland, is well known for being a peaceful country all around, with almost little to no violent crime. In 2020, there were on average 2,800 prisoners at any one time, and 130 police officers per 100,000 people. So it was understandably a massive shock when four teenagers went to Lake Bodum in 1960, and only one of them came out. Authorities scrambled to solve what would become one of the biggest unsolved mysteries in the nation's history. People say Ted Bundy didn't show any emotion. I showed emotion. (laughs) <laughs> clear. We have a we have a the following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it is not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go to for all of my documentary needs. With a wide range of documentaries from space, nature, to true crime, and all with 4K at no extra cost, it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day while still learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week, so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched A Mother's Madness, which is a documentary about a mother who murdered her five children. Five miniature heart-shaped tombstones are found in the graveyard on a dusty village in Pampiastad. All five of the dead had been killed by their mother. Is it madness that would lead a mother to commit such a crime? Or does society at large have a role to play in preventing this? This thought provoking film explores the dark side of the maternal bond when love turns to hate in an instant. Be sure to use the link at the top of my description or the link in the pinned comments and use your one month free trial to go watch this documentary. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I've said before, new documentaries like A Mother's Madness are added to Magellan TV weekly so do not sleep on this offer right now there's a special holiday promotion where if you buy one annual subscription to magellan tv you get another one for free a free gift card for it so if you don't have any present ideas and there's someone in your life that loves documentaries and loves learning about something new then it's the perfect gift to give this holiday season make sure to take advantage of this offer by using the links below and thank you to magellan tv for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible Now, back to the case. The Lake Bodum murders are described as Finland's most famous unsolved crime, with many believing it to be a case that may remain unsolved for years to come. Four teenagers retreated to a campsite on Lake Bodum for a double date during the White Nights period in Finland. Now, for those of you who may not know, a white night is when the sun doesn't set below the horizon, which means it's bright enough to walk outside at nighttime Without the need for any artificial lighting. Everything was going well for the group of four teenagers, which consisted of two 15-year-old girls and their 18-year-old boyfriends. They were enjoying the white night at the lake, hanging out and just having a good time. That was until the early hours of Saturday the 4th of June, 1960. The four teenagers had picked a wisely known campsite on the shore of a lake called Bodonyavi, which is Finnish for Lake Bodum. The two teenage girls in the group were 15-year-old Myla Aramelli Bjorklund, who had been born on the 6th of June 1944, and 15-year-old Anja Maki, who had been born on the 23rd of February 1945. And they had both brought their 18-year-old boyfriends, Seppo Anteiro Boysman, who was Anja's boyfriend, and Nils Wilhelm Gustafsson, who was Myla's. The four of them had set up their campsite in the afternoon of the 3rd of June and they enjoyed their time in the afternoon and into the evening, surrounded by Mother Nature's beauty. They swam together in the lake, drank and fished, all having a wonderful time. Myla had recorded in her diary that they had still been awake at 2am, writing that Seppo and Nils had been drunk and that Seppo was still fishing in the lake. The sun began to rise higher at 3am over Lake Bodum, illuminating the waters and the campsite of the four teenagers, though the lively atmosphere that had engulfed the teenagers campsite had fallen silent, the rising sun revealing the teenagers tent to have fallen in on itself. Multiple witnesses reported seeing a collapsed tent throughout the morning, but hadn't given it the time of day to go and inspect it to make sure everything was okay. At 11am, a a man who went by the name of Esko Johansson had taken a trip to the lake with his son, so that they could go swimming together. And it was as he was getting ready to go swim in the lake with his son, that he noticed the collapsed tent. Esko took it upon himself to go over and check the tent, and as he got closer to the campsite, he realised that there were bodies on the ground. He immediately shielded his son from the gruesome scene that lay before him, and ran in a different direction to call for the police. As Esko was calling for the authorities, a different man, who went by the name of Sigurd Volasma, who had also stumbled across the scene where the four teenagers had camped at, at about 11.15am. And Sigurd, just as Esko had done, ran to call for the police, the second call that the authorities received about this case. The KRP, or the Kes Kusri Kospo Lisi, or the National Borough of Investigation, is the National Law Enforcement Agency in Finland, please do excuse me on my Finnish pronunciations within this video, and they are the primary agency that investigates violent and organised crime. The law enforcement officers quickly arrived at the scene, and when they approached the campsite, they discovered four bodies. Three out of the four bodies found at the camping ground were sadly pronounced dead by the attending emergency services. Only Nils Gustafsson would make it out alive from the brutal massacre that had occurred to the group of four teenagers. A first responder drew this sketch of the entanglement of the three bodies, which shows how they had been found. 15-year-old Myla, 15-year-old Anya, and 18-year-old Seppo had all tragically lost their lives in the attack. All three of them had sustained several stab wounds and blunt force traumas to their heads and their bodies. Nils, the only survivor of the attack, had been found lying on his back, with numerous stab wounds to his neck and chest, and had sustained blunt force trauma to the head. Anya had died in the fetal position, and had sustained blunt force trauma hard enough to have knocked her tooth out and broken her jaw in not one, but two different places. Myla had sustained the worst injuries in the attack. With 15 stab wounds to her neck and face, blunt force trauma and defence wounds to her arms. She had further almost been stripped from the waist down, with one trouser leg halfway down one leg, and the other completely pulled off. Upon initial examination and investigation, law enforcement officers came to the conclusion that the guide ropes, the ropes that had anchored the tent to ensure it doesn't move during high winds, and the ropes that kept the tent upright, had been cut. Which caused the tent to fall in on itself, falling on the sleeping teenagers. This would then allow the attacker or attackers to easily slash, stab and bludgeon the teenagers through the material of the tent as they were trapped underneath. A photograph of the crime scene had been taken before the bodies of the three teenagers were recovered and before Nils, who was still barely alive, was rescued from the tent. Now I know what you're thinking, Why the hell did the authorities take a moment for a little photo-op before going and firstly making sure the teenagers were okay or not, and secondly, before providing Nils medical treatment so that he wouldn't die? This was something that was heavily scrutinised by the general public, due to the lack of care of the crime scene from the authorities. The police had allowed onlookers and investigators to trample over evidence, contaminating the crime scene. They failed to do one of the most basic steps. Secure and preserve the crime scene. Further to this, accusations were brought against the investigating officers regarding alleged evidence being overlooked and due to Swedish speaking police misunderstanding the locals when taking testimonies. Several sweeps of the crime scene and the area surrounding revealed nothing that could have been used as a murder weapon, which was indicative to the police that the attacker or attackers had taken the weapon with them. It was further discovered that some of the teenagers personal items had also been taken from the campsites. The authorities conducted a search of the lake, to try to uncover any items that may have been discarded by the attacker or attackers, or any evidence that may lead to an arrest. Though these searches of the lake didn't yield any results that could break the case. They did find stolen wallets and stolen watches in the lake, but most importantly, They found a knife that had belonged to Seppo, and both Seppo and Nil's shoes. It was concluded that the attacker or attackers had carried the two boys' shoes approximately 500 metres south of the teenagers' campsites before dropping them into the lake, right at the shoreline. A few more items were found in the searches of the surrounding area including a drinking bottle that did have prints on them, though when they were lifted, they weren't a match for anybody on the system or in their records or anybody at the crime scene or any of the victims. The authorities are unsure whether this water bottle is relevant to this case or whether the water bottle is just somebody's discarded or lost possession. It's important to note that the keys to Seppo's motorbike had been stolen from the camping site, though the motorbike itself had been left at the crime scene. Upon further investigations of the scene, the teenagers' items were found to have been scattered around the camp, which led the sniffer dogs to various different areas around the site and the nearby shoreline. Nothing of particular note was found besides a pillowcase that had been rolled up and tied with an elastic band. After forensic examination, blood and semen were determined to have been on the pillowcase, though when the blood samples were tested, the authorities were left baffled as the bloods couldn't be matched to any single person. The blood sample contained a mixture of different people's bloods, and due to it being the 1960s, they simply did not have advanced enough technology to separate the bloods into different profiles. The semen was also sampled and tested, and that was found to have not been a match for Nils or Seppo, all of which sent the authorities back to square one. Due to malpractice and incompetence from the investigating officers, the items that had been recovered from the teenagers' tents had deteriorated, due to them being soaked in blood. This meant that these items couldn't be used to provide any more information in the investigation, The authorities' incompetence essentially ruined these pieces of evidence that may have provided vital clues and leads. Blankets and jackets were given back to the families of the teenagers before they could be processed as evidence which caused them to be contaminated and subsequently destroyed. So the investigators, once again, ruined their chances of recovering any additional evidence from these items. Over the course of the investigation, the authorities interviewed around 4,000 people, and of those 4,000 people, only three interviewees provided any significant information on this case to the investigators. The first of these three had been a local woman who had lived on the west shore of the lake, and she had seen two young men, who the police presumed to have been Nils and Sappo fishing. Though, when Nils was questioned about this, he denied this being him and Seppo, as he claimed that they had been fishing in a different place on the lake. If this is true, then these two strange men, cited by the woman, may be viable suspects in the case, Especially considering neither of them have ever come forward during the investigations. Two hours after this sighting by this local woman, two other women, the two other people that the police had spoken to, had come forward. And they had heard what they described as quote, cries for help, as they had been out bird watching. At approximately 6am, the two women investigated the campsite that the four teenagers had been staying in from a distance and they claimed to have seen a blonde man walking away from the campsite. They described him as being in his mid-20s to 30s, with an average build and standing at around 5 foot 8 tall. This man was further described to have been wearing a light jacket and dark trousers. Investigators, upon learning this information, were fairly certain that this blonde man was highly likely to have been the perpetrator of the attacks, though They have been unable to identify him. As Nils was the only survivor and subsequently the only real eyewitness to the horrific crimes that happened to him and his friends, only he could truly tell the authorities what had actually happened that fateful night. Unfortunately though, due to the injuries that he had sustained, he suffered amnesia and was completely unable to accurately recall any of the events that had taken place that night. The police decided that the best thing to do was to try and hypnotise Nils to try and get any further information from him. Needless to say, this is shitty police work to no end. I don't even want to begin to delve into the science behind this technique and what a completely stupid idea it was. Nils, under hypnosis, was only able to give the authorities a very basic account of the attack. He recalled the tent falling on his head in the moments before the attack. And then struggling to free himself from the fabric. Now, Nils had been able to give the police a very vague description of the attacker, which actually matched the description given by the two women who had been bird watching and had seen a blonde man leaving the scene of the crime. Unfortunately, doctors have refuted Nils' recounts of the attack and his description of the suspects due to the fact that the amnesia caused by the head injuries he had sustained would have made it impossible to recount, as those memories had just not been formed, they would just not been saved in his mind. So obviously this hypnosis evidence couldn't be used as any viable form of evidence in court, it couldn't be used for any prosecution or any basis for any leads. One boy, who was called Olavi Kilvallati, and who had been 14 years old at the time, had been fishing west of the teenager's campsite and he'd been able to back up the claims made by the two birdwatching women, saying that he too had also seen a blond man walking away from the crime scene. The boy was further able to provide the same description of the blonde man's clothing, and had told the police that the man had been walking south. Despite the similarities in the witness accounts regarding this blonde man, and despite Nil being severely injured during the attack, to this day he remains one of the top three suspects, the murder of his friends. Evidence against Nils, though, did surface in 2004. The police conducted analysis and an experiment on the blood splatter found on the tent at the crime scene, and the blood splatters found on Nils' shoes. And this analysis concluded that the shoes had been worn by the attacker during the murders. And as the shoes had been Nils, suspicions quickly fell on him and his involvement. And as a result of this, Nils was actually arrested and questioned before being tried for the murders that happened at Lake Bodum. Now, it is important to note that the police failed to test Seppo's shoes, which was a fact that enraged the general public. There were further claims of inconsistencies and malpractice throughout the police's investigation into this case, the KRP, the investigators, had also received a tip from a woman who told them that both Nils and Seppo had visited her in the night, and she had claimed to the authorities that both of the two boys had been very drunk, and that Nils had even tried to fight Seppo, which gave the police a basis for a motive for the murders. Although, this woman didn't come forward with this account until 44 years after the murders had happened, and the authorities, understandably, didn't understand why she'd kept quiet for so long, with such important and pivotal information. Whatever the case, though, nobody formally questioned her on why she'd stayed quiet all this time. As mentioned earlier in this case, Mila had tragically received the brunt of the attack, sustaining 15 stab wounds to her face and neck, and numerous blunt force injuries. The police had quickly drafted a theory based on witness testimonies from the people that had been nearby to the campsite when the attacks had taken place, and they theorised that Nils had been kicked out of the tent late at night after Mailer had rejected his sexual advances, leaving him to storm off and stew in his anger. It was then suggested that Nils returned to the tent once his friends had fallen asleep, to cut the guide ropes and attack Seppo. The injuries that Nils had sustained were thought to have been due to him fighting with Seppo, and it was suggested within this theory that the injuries looked worse than they actually were. This meant that Nils would have been left with enough adrenaline after killing Seppo to kill Anya, followed by Myla. As we spoke about earlier on in this video, Myla's trousers had been pulled from her body, which was indicative of an attempted sexual assault. However, medical examiners were unable to find any evidence of sexual assault or rape taking place. This theory was one that was widely believed by both the KRP and the general public, though both of these parties chose to ignore the inconsistencies within the evidence. While it was true that many pieces of evidence do point to Nils, there are still just as many questions within this case that remained unanswered. The clothing that Nils had worn on the night of the murder had been spotless, and they hadn't been tested alongside his shoes during the blood splatter analysis. Nils had also sustained injuries that he physically could not have given to himself, such as a cut that he had sustained to his cheek that had hit his teeth it had gone that deep, or the head injury that had caused his brain to leak cerebral fluid. Further, his blood had also been found on the inside of the tent, which was indicative of the fact that he had been attacked while he was inside. According to reports, neither the prosecution or the defense wanted to present the pillowcase the pillowcase they found earlier on as evidence in court because the blood and semen had been unidentified and couldn't be used to support either side of the case. The closest this piece of evidence had come to supporting either side of the case was the fact that the sperm did not match the DNA profile of Nils, meaning that the attack had indeed been conducted by an outsider and not by one of the four teenagers, or at least this pillowcase had belonged to somebody outside of the four teenagers. After all of this evidence had been presented to the court during the trial against Nils, the jury reached a verdict. And they found Nils not guilty, ruling in his favor. He was awarded 44,000 euros in damages following the verdict being reached. After his case, Nils gave just one statement to the press, in which journalists responded with extremely harsh and aggressive questioning. He told the press and the media that although he didn't remember the attack due to his amnesia, he knew for certain that he did not kill his friends. Nils refused to elaborate, and simply finished with quote, I am innocent, and that's that. It must be noted that this quote has been translated from Finnish by myself and my team, and there may be more to it that we just don't know there may be more like deeper meanings in Finnish than it is in the translation to English. The quote is in its most simplified form. Another prime suspect in this case was a local kiosk man who went by the name of Carl Gilstrom. Carl had been notoriously known for hating campers, as he had been the one who looked after Lake Bowden. It had been common knowledge in the area that he had an innate hatred for noisy campers, including teenagers and loud vehicles, such as mopeds and motorbikes. Throwback to the fact that... Seppo had a motorbike and the keys were stolen, but the motorbike was left. And Carl had been caught on several occasions cutting the guide ropes on campus tents around the lake. Locals had also mentioned to the police that shortly after the murders, Carl had been seen filling in a well on his land, as if he had been hiding things at the bottom of it. Unfortunately though, these claims were not investigated by the authorities, as his wife did back up his alibi, confirming that he had been asleep with her in bed on the night of the murder. Locals knew Carl to have been an abusive alcoholic that threatened to beat his wife and children, and including all the aforementioned pieces of information, this saw Carl being in the top three suspect list in the Lake Bodum murders. Further adding to this theory, when his wife had been on her deathbed, she actually revoked her statement and claims that she'd given her husband a fake alibi on the night of the murders. Though this wasn't pursued by law enforcement, as Carl had already passed away. Carl had actually ended his life by drowning himself in Lake Bodum itself in 1969. It's speculated that his method of death may have been a telltale sign of guilt, choosing to die in the same location he may have killed those teenagers. A local politician even wrote a book on the murders, claiming that he had evidence that Carl had been guilty of the murders, and had spent a brief period in a mental hospital. The hospital records concerning this stint in the psychiatric facility were sealed for 50 years after his death, but they were made public record in 2019. I must note that my team and I were unable to find these records online to see whether we could find any more information. Hans Assmann is an intriguing suspect within this case, and the English sources that discuss the Lake Boden murders don't really delve into who he was, or really his involvement in the case at all. Hans had been born in Germany, and was suspected to have been a KBG spy, which is the Committee for the State Security, he had checked himself into hospital on the 7th of June 1960 with dirty fingernails and red stains on his clothing. Witnesses further noted that he had been acting aggressive and anxious. Upon arrival, he had lied about the reason for his condition, though he had told the hospital staff that he lived about three kilometres away from the lake. When the physical description of the suspect cited by the two birdwatchers was released to the public, Hans had cut his hair short. It's speculated that he likely did so in order to try and reduce his likeliness to the suspect. Hospital staff further reported that he appeared to have been faking unconsciousness, losing consciousness. Jorma Palo, an assistant at the hospital, was certain that Hans was the killer, and most of his colleagues agreed with him. The red staining on Hans' clothing, although never officially tested, was just shrugged off as being red paint that he had been using at work. A former detective had actually connected Hans to at least five other murders in the area, as he matched the suspect description in all of those other cases. At the time of the Lake Bowdoin murders, Hans actually had a solid alibi, though this alibi wasn't actually released until 2005 to the general public, as it had been considered quote, sensitive information. You see, Hans had been cheating on his wife with his 33 year old girlfriend, and at the time of the murders, she had confirmed that he'd been staying with her. His girlfriend was a subtenant in a house living with her landlord and landlady, who quoted that if he had gotten up to leave throughout the night, he would have been noticed. They said that he'd gotten out of bed at around 9am, hours after the murders had taken place. On his deathbed in 1977, a writer approached him in the hopes of recording any new information about the Lake Bodum case, to which he responded, quote, I suppose you expect me to tell you about those tents and knife things. I have to disappoint you. I will not admit nor deny things. This led the writer to believe that Hans knew more than he was letting on, which didn't make him look any more innocent in the eyes of the public. The Lake Bodum murders are infamous in Finland for being one of the most violent crimes committed in Finland, as the majority of the country are known to be peaceful and relatively crime-free. Finnish people believe that these murders are likely to never be solved due to the lack of competence from the authorities and the inconsistent investigations that they concluded. Myla, Anya and Seppo had such a massive effect on the nation of Finland, having numerous articles, books and films written about them, and their story. A band names themselves Children of Bodum to commemorate the teenagers that had lost their lives on what they thought would be an exciting camping trip under the White Knights of Finland. I, for one, hope this case finds closure soon and justice is found for Myla, Anya, and Seppo three promising and hopeful young people who had their lives so violently stolen from them. And that's everything I have for you in today's video. Make sure to hit that subscribe button and that bell icon so you don't miss out on any more true crime videos just like this one. Do you want more Joshua Miles content? Do you wanna hang out with me live, play chill games and discuss true crime with me? Then guess what? You can. Just jump over to twitch.tv forward slash joshmiles and hit that cheeky little follow button where I stream every Monday, Wednesday, Friday and Sundays at 9pm UK time. We hang out on stream whenever a new true crime video goes live where we'll talk about the case that's in the new video and just kind of hang out. It's like Joshua Miles after hours. Follow me on Twitch. You can join our little community for free. You can find a link at the top of the description and in the pinned comments. Don't forget to go check me out on Twitch. You can find a link at the top of the description and a link in the pinned comments. Go follow me over there. I'll be live right now as this video is being posted. So come over and say hi. We're gonna discuss the case in a bit more detail and I'll answer any questions that you have. And a special thank you to Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. Be sure to take advantage of the current promotion by using the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments. You can also find my Twitter and Instagram. both handles are at its Joshua Miles down below. And with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. A special thank you to all of my Patreon members for helping keep this channel afloat, but especially thank you to my lead investigators for all of your support. If you'd like to support this channel for less than $5 a month, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash Miles. For less than $5 a month, you'll get early access to videos and access to scripts and also polls on cases. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice, and support.